have you ever noticed how people are always trying to figure out whether a baby looks like their mother or their father? Even newborns who still look like shriveled prunes. Oh, she looks just like her mother. He's his father's spitting image. Yeah, I guess dad's a big-headed, bow-legged, chubby lump. It's kind of funny when our girls were, were babies, my family would say, she looks like her daddy. Yep, definitely a Raymond. See, she's got Dan's straight brown hair. And then Teresa's family would come and they would look at the exact same child and they would come to a completely different conclusion. She looks just like her mother. Yep, she's a, she's a Shaw. She's got Teresa's straight brown hair. <laughs> well, all arguments about family traits aside, there is one time where Jesus says that we as Christians look most like our Heavenly Father. All right, One quality that undeniably shows that we are his children, his sons and daughters. When we do this one thing, people can look at us and see that we look just like our father. And it's not that cowlick in your hair. It's not your green eyes or your pointy nose. That undeniable family trait is when we love our enemies. Right? There is something distinctly godlike about loving our enemies. Here's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here it is, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, throughout the sermon, sermon, ever since the opening Beatitudes, Jesus has been comparing and contrasting um, fake religious righteousness with a true righteousness of the heart. Now, the Pharisees were, were guys that wanted everyone to think that they were super spiritual, right? And they put on a big show of being devout. And Jesus gives example after example of, of how their big show was just phony godliness, a, a facade, from their anger issues to lust to breaking their promises to seeking personal revenge, Jesus exposes their true hearts. But he also reveals the heart of true righteousness. Now, there's a, a progression to the examples Jesus gives throughout the sermon. And he's not pulling these things uh, out of thin air, but he's building to something. He's going deeper, and each one of these gets us a little closer to our own heart of hearts. First, Jesus talks about not being angry with our brother. And then he talks about being faithful to our spouse. 
Then he talks about keeping our promises. And last week we saw how Jesus tells us not to retaliate against those who have wronged us. But in this morning's passage, um, Jesus goes on to say that not only should we not seek revenge against those who've wronged us, but he calls us to actively love them. Right? That's next level spirituality. That's God level spirituality. Now, Dan level spirituality says, well, maybe I could put that dirty deed behind me as long as I can ignore them from now on and, 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 and avoid them, have nothing to do with them. But Jesus says, no, you can't ignore them. You can't just forget about them. You can't just steer clear of them. He says, Dan, you have to love them. Now, that's the exact opposite of what the Pharisees taught and practiced. Verse 43 reads, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, most of these examples, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, and then he deals with the Pharisees' misinterpretation of that. But here he's quoting, well, what the Pharisees taught. This, But the first part does come right out of the Old Testament, but not the second part. Now, the full command from Leviticus 19, verse 18 says this, love your neighbor as yourself, right? You need to love them the same way you love yourself. Now, Jesus will later quote this verse himself. But notice the difference between what Leviticus 19, 18 says and what the Pharisees say, right? They left off the last two words. They left off as yourself. Now, those two words are a key part of this command. And there's a big difference between, say, loving someone and then loving them as we love ourselves, right? Loving someone else as we love ourselves, right? That sets the bar pretty high. And this would never fit the Pharisees' prideful self-righteousness, right? Because these were guys that really loved themselves, all of these religious things they did, this big spiritual show, it was not really about loving God, but it was about loving themselves. And Jesus describes how they made a big show out of giving. Right? They would have trumpeters who would let everyone know that they were about to make a big donation. They were going to put a lot of coins into the box. Their public prayers were were well-rehearsed, finely-honed speeches done in a, in a time and a place to be heard by the most people possible. Even something as probably private and personal as fasting was turned into a dramatic production to garner TikTok views and Facebook shares. No, these guys really love themselves, right? There's no way they could love someone else at that same level, right? But that's just part of the problem with what the Pharisees did to this biblical command. Not only did they leave the first uh, leave part of the command off, they added something to it, right? And this one addendum completely changes its meaning. So what they have is love your neighbor with that one part left off and 
hate your enemy. Right? The Bible never said hate your enemy. They just assumed and added that part. Now, here's how their reasoning worked. Well, the law says that I'm supposed to love my neighbor. And my neighbor is, well, that's one of my own people, someone of my own race and my own religion, someone of my own tribe, a fellow Jew. That is my neighbor. Well, other people, they're not my neighbors, right? I don't have to love them. In fact, if they're not my neighbors and if they're my enemy, then I don't have to love them at all. In fact, I should hate them. I love my neighbor, but hate my enemy. And using these kind of interpretive loopholes, the Pharisees could make the law say anything they wanted. But in doing so, they ignored God's true intent. But here's Jesus, the Son of God, and he's pointing to God's true heart in loving our neighbor. And Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, this isn't anything new. Jesus isn't, this isn't a new innovation. This same teaching was already in the Old Testament. Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5 says, If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. And if you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help him with it. And then Proverbs 25, 21, it says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Jesus says that when we love our enemies, that's when we become true children of God. Right? That's, that's when we are like his sons and daughters. The New Living Translation puts this verse this way. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Right? We're showing, demonstrating that God's nature is truly within us. It's, it's proof. Our love is proof that we are his children. When we love our enemies, we are acting just like our father, right? In kindness undeserved, in compassion unearned, we bear an unmistakable family resemblance. See, God showed his love to all people, whether they love him or hate him. In verse 45, Jesus speaks of how God loves all people. He causes his rain, to, the sun to shine on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Right There are beautiful days in China, just like there are in the United States. Right? Rains fall and, and crops grow in the Middle East, just like they do here. God gives his blessings without regard to whether people deserve them or not. God's love in some form benefits everyone. Now, this is very different from the Pharisees and what they taught, where they divided everyone into two groups, neighbors and enemies. And then they had very different sets of, of codes of conduct for each. Right? But Jesus points out that there's nothing really special or spiritual about loving people who love you back. Right? There's nothing special about just loving your neighbors. Now, loving your enemies, that's unique. That's special. 
that's spiritual. In fact, it's a godlike quality. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus was having a discussion with a religious leader about this verse in Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And the teacher asked Jesus the question, and who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells this story where a man is beaten and robbed and left for dead. And you have a whole bunch of people who walk by and ignore him. And each person that walks by is not only a, a spiritual person, but it is somebody that the religious leaders would say is a neighbor. All right, a, a priest, a Levite, fellow Jews. But then finally, a hated enemy, a Samaritan walks by, but he is the one that has compassion and shows mercy. He is the one that tends to his wounds, takes care of him, uh, feeds him, finds him a place to stay, gets him medical care, and does all of that. And Jesus asked the question in this story, who was a neighbor to this man? Well, the answer is obvious. In this story, anyone can be our neighbor. A neighbor is not defined by race or religion or social status. Jesus points out that, that a neighbor is any person who is in need. It's anyone who can meet that need. Now, the Pharisees' definition of neighbor was this tight little circle that, that included very few people. But Jesus draws his circle with the far-reaching hand of God so that it includes everyone. No one was left out of Jesus' neighborhood. To Jesus, everyone was a neighbor. Now, Jesus' definition of neighbor was so large, in fact, that it includes your enemies. Like the teacher of the law, we're tempted to ask a question of our own. Well, Jesus, just who do you mean by my enemy? Who's my enemy? Like, by enemy, Lord, do you mean that, well, we should love those who are a minor nuisance and inconvenience to our lives? Maybe those who just, uh, you know, get in the way sometimes, the irritating coworker, that annoying uncle, or that pesky neighbor. But you really don't mean my E-N-E-M-Y enemy, do you? Do you really want me to love the person who doesn't even like me? I mean, Lord, they can't stand me. They've got it in for me. They, they want me to get fired from my job. They would love it if I got kicked off the team. You want me to love them? Well, if we turn to Luke chapter uh, 6, verses 27 and 28, I think we get a very clear picture of exactly who Jesus means by our enemies. Now, Luke 6 contains a sermon of Jesus that's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. In fact, some people think it's the same sermon, just Luke's version is a little more condensed. Other people think, no, it's, it's a, a totally different sermon, but Jesus talks about a lot of the same stuff. But whatever the case, in verses 27 and 28 of uh, Luke 6, we see exactly who Jesus means by your enemies. Here's what he says. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those 
who mistreat you. All right? So Jesus defines our enemies here with three things. All right, first, your enemies are those who hate you. This isn't just somebody who's mildly annoying or inconvenient. Right? This word means to detest or abhor. Right? They hate you, but there's more. This person doesn't like you at all. They can't stand you. Not only that, they stay away from you. Now, the word here also contains the idea that they wish you harm. Right? They have ill will towards you. Right? They're at least hoping something bad happens to you, even maybe even going out of their way to see that something bad does happen to you. One of my Greek dictionaries defines the word this way, to pursue someone with hatred. So this person really doesn't like you, and they want you to know it. And what does Jesus say? Love them. Love them. All right, secondly, your enemies are those who curse you. Now, in a very specific sense, uh, cursing you is somebody who would invoke a, a formal denouncement on you. Right? It was to call upon God or the gods to bring about calamity in your life. But a curse could be speaking any sort of evil or ill will against you. This is the person who, all right, they spread malicious gossip about you. They tell lies. They try to undermine you with others. Right? This is also the person who will insult you to your face. They will use words to injure you, to embarrass you. They post malicious stuff online. When it comes to talking to you or about you, this person uses their words as finely sharpened weapons. But what does Jesus say? Love them. Thirdly, your enemies are those who mistreat you. Now, Jesus says our enemies show their hatred in their actions. Not only do they not like you, not only do they speak evil with you, uh, speak evil of you, but they act with evil intent. The word that Jesus uses here literally means to bring a false legal charge against you. Um, so this is someone who will go into a court of law, all right, and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but then lie about you to make you look bad, all right? To, to make you go to jail, to make you pay a fine. All right, this person will lie, will cheat, will, will scheme to hurt you. And what does Jesus say? Love them. Love them. Now, it'd be really easy for me just to, to end the sermon here. After all, we understand what the passage means. Um, but knowing and understanding aren't enough. It's the doing that counts. And that's where this gets really tough when it comes to actually loving our enemies. There was a speaker at a conference that I attended years ago who, who talked about there were certain passages in the Bible where he would write in the margins, Y-B-H, which means yes, but how? Right, there, there are certain passages that we understand them, they make sense, but we wonder, yes, Lord, but, but how do we do this? I know what you mean, but, but how do we actually accomplish this? 
there are difficult sayings that that we understand well enough. We just don't seem to be able to live it out in real life. The most difficult verses aren't the ones we don't understand. They're the ones that we understand perfectly well. Just don't want to do them. Well, let me give you some help in the, but how, Lord? Let me give you some help in that area. Now, full disclosure, I don't have this figured out. Loving my enemies is not a spiritual discipline that, that I have in any way mastered. Now, I, I can say that over the years, I've been given ample opportunities to, to take the high road, to keep my mouth shut when slandered or lied about. I've even on several occasions turned the other cheek. But actively loving my enemies, blessing my enemies, acting to seek good for them, I, that's hard stuff. I, and I struggle with it, uh, just like I'm sure you do. But if we go back to, to Luke 20, uh, Luke chapter 6, 27 and 28, not only does our does Jesus describe our enemies in three ways, but I think he also gives us three specific ways that we can love them. Let me read this again. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So, First is that we've got to do, do love in action, right? Do good to those who hate us. That's love in action. And when Jesus uses the word love here, he doesn't mean what we usually mean when we use the word love. He's not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings. Jesus isn't saying that, that we're going to have warm, fuzzy feelings for our enemies or even that we're going to like them, all right? That's not what he's talking about. And it's impossible, at least at the beginning. Jesus isn't referring at all to what we feel about them. He's talking about what we do, how we act about them. And the way we start loving our enemies is that we do the loving thing. We do good for them, regardless of how we feel. The Old Testament verses we read earlier gave specific examples. If you see your enemy's donkey escape from its pen, what do you do? Do you shoo it further down the road or do you return it to where it belongs? If you see the enemy's ox has fallen under its load, what do you do? Do you laugh at your enemy's misfortune or do you ease the burden and help the ox back up? All right. So what we've got to do is apply these types of examples to our 21st century life. So if you see your enemy's car parked on the street and the meter runs out, what do you do? You see him on the side of the road with a flat tire, what do you do? If you see the enemy walk out of the bathroom toward her locker and a long strand of toilet paper is trailing along behind her, what do you do? Some of your enemy's mail accidentally ends up in your mailbox, including what seems like a very important bill. What do you do? Your boss mistakenly thinks that your enemy messed up a very important account, but you know it wasn't them. What do you do? You see, how you answer these questions 
shows whether you're a true child of God or not. Do you look like your father? Jesus isn't calling us to like our enemies. He's calling us to love them. And that begins with doing good for them. But not only is there love in action, there needs to be love in word. Now, we live in a culture that specializes in insult. I mean, we praise the barbed comment, the, the witty zinger, the sharp comeback. And here are some classics. Are you always this stupid? Are you making a special effort today? Don't let your mind wander. It's far too small to be let out on its own. He's lost in thought. It's unfamiliar territory. He doesn't know the meaning of the word fear, but then again, he doesn't know the meaning of most words. I don't know what makes you so dumb, but boy, it really works. I don't think you're a fool, but what's my opinion compared to thousands of others? But Jesus doesn't call us to return hateful words with sharply barbed insults. We're to return hateful words with kind words. In response to insults, we offer compliments. If they wish us ill, we wish them well. We return curses with blessings. Bless those who persecute you. Now, loving in word... I'll be honest with you, that can be even more difficult than loving in action. See, loving in action, many times we have time to think about it, to consider it. We have a moment to deliberate and, and choose our plan of action. But our speech so often comes out in the spur of the moment. Right? We speak without thinking. We blurt out of our hurt feelings. We say hateful things before we've had a chance to really think about what we're saying and, and to consider being loving with our words. So the next time that you're either speaking to your enemy or about your enemy, keep the following two things in mind. Number one, wait to respond, right? Pass the words through a mental filter. Is this the loving thing to say? Don't just blurt out the first thing that comes to your mind. Number two, weigh your response carefully. Are your words designed to bless or curse? So love and action, love and words. The third way we can love our enemies, Jesus says, is to love in prayer. And we may not always be able to, to do good for our enemies or to say kind words to them. Uh, we might not even find it possible at first to bring ourselves to that level of obedience. But one thing we can always do is we can pray for them. In fact, if you're struggling to love an enemy in your life, I would re recommend doing these, these three things in reverse order. Right, love them in prayer first, love them in words second, and then love them in action. Begin with prayer. There is no greater place that we can go with our enemy than to God in prayer. For it's only in God's strength that we can truly learn to love our enemy. It's only with his help that, that they may cease to be our enemy and become our brother or our sister. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, 
in World War II, he wrote a book about the Sermon on the Mount. And he wrote it at a time when the Nazis were rising to power in his country. And ultimately, he would die a martyr's death in a Nazi concentration camp. But here's what he writes about praying for our enemies. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. You get the gist of what he's saying there? We aren't just praying for God to do something about our enemy for God to, to put our enemy in his place, but we're seeking God to bless them. So even when we're struggling to find the strength to love them ourselves, we can ask God to love them with his perfect love. By praying for someone, you're investing in their life. And the more you invest in their someone's life, the more you will care for that investment. And the more you care for that investment, the more you're going to want to look after it. And thus, in prayer, we learn to love our enemy. So the next time you, you really want to tell them off, you want to give them a piece of their mind, you're tempted to put them in their place, bow your head and pray. Pray something like this. Heavenly Father, my enemy is your creation. You put them on this earth and you put them in my life for a reason and a purpose. I know you love them, Lord. You sent your son to die for them that they might have an eternal relationship with you and ultimately with me, Lord. So God, I pray that, that they would know just how much you love them and that they can see how much you want to bless their life. Lord, I pray that you might give me the same love for them that you have. And may we begin to experience on earth just a taste of that relationship that we will have in heaven. And as you go to God in prayer for this person, you'll just watch that, that hate begin to melt away. And God begins to open the door to, to loving them in word and in action. Loving our enemies is impossible on our own. But with God's help, we could do what we could never do by ourselves. Right? And that's why we must love our enemies in prayer. Now, if you do these three things, right? if you love them in prayer, you love them in word, and you love them in action, um, it makes all of the difference. If you can pray a prayer of love for your enemy, if you can find a loving word to say, if you can find a loving thing to do, then you're well on your way to loving your enemy. That's why we have to, to learn to love our enemy in prayer. Um, and when we do that, we show that we're a son or a daughter of God. We look just like our father. Jesus then concludes this statement with what seems to be an impossible standard, uh, something we could never measure up to. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, I don't think that in this life we will ever reach a state of absolute sinless perfection. I, I don't think we reach that point until we're actually 
with Jesus in eternity. But I'm not even sure that's what Jesus means here. This word literally means to be mature. And it's often translated that way. So I think what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to be grown up in love. I want you to be mature in love. And when we can love even our enemies, that's when we look like our Father in heaven. Thank you. And God bless. <laughs>